0: The following audio is from a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, entitled, Pray Like Jesus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Have you, have you ever thought about how much you value safety? You think about that? Have you ever thought about how much safety is a factor in the decisions that you make in life? Right Very rarely do you, if you're a law-abiding citizen, get in your car without buckling your seatbelt or your children, right? Of course, you're going to strap them in nice and tight. If you've got toddlers, you're going to put outlet covers over the outlets to keep them from fi- sticking paper clips in there. Hoist up those drawer and the uh, cupboard doors. You've got handrails in your house. You wear bicycle helmets when you go out on the river. OSHA is at work protecting you in your workplace. Now, why why do you think this is? Why do you think safety is such a factor in life? I think it's because deep inside of us, we all know that the world is filled with danger. Danger. There is always something threatening our well-being. This is why we teach our kids about stranger danger. This is why we lock our doors at night. This is why we take out life insurance policies, because there is always a threat of something happening. Now, just as there's physical danger everywhere we look, we are also surrounded by a host of spiritual danger. There are forces of darkness working against us, fighting, scheming, trying to disrupt you and diminish your faith. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he closes his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6, he says, put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against Satan. It's a call to arms. He says, our main danger The thing that threatens us most is not the physical threats. It's not what we fear in the flesh. It's the dark cosmic spiritual forces that are at work against us. Do you realize there is a battle raging around you at all times? Now, if you had the sensory uh, ability, you could hear the blasts of explosions, spiritual bombs blowing up. You could hear the chugging of machine guns. The war is raging. But the thing is that few of us are very rarely aware of such threatening danger. See, we don't like to think about that in a sense. And because we don't like to think about it, we don't realize how near this danger is and how threatening it is. Now, I, I think we can see this in a couple places in our lives. I can see this in how reluctant we can be to go to God in prayer. See, if if we were aware of the danger, we would realize that we have no other option but to turn to God in our time of need, to cry out for help. But instead, a lot of times we distract ourselves. We get busy with projects around the house. We throw on football. We watch Netflix. We, We don't like to acknowledge this very real reality. Or, or even see it in how we, we nonchalantly waltz into church on a Sunday morning. Now, sometimes we come to church just because it's what we do, right? That's part of our rhythm. We waltz in, and maybe we're hoping for some good music, maybe a little bit of an encouraging word, maybe some free coffee. And this we miss... The reality of the danger that is threatened. This is probably the most dangerous place you can be on a Sunday morning. Not in a physical sense. But Satan knows where to find God's people. See, when we come into church on Sundays, our concern ought to be to be nourished and to be outfitted as we are sent out to face off with danger for the next six days. See, church ought to be a place where we are gearing up, where we're engaging and becoming ready to fight whatever God lays before us. See, we see danger isn't just a physical reality, it's a spiritual reality. And as we're in our last week of our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, what we've seen so far, and Jesus, what he's doing here in the Lord's Prayer, he's teaching his followers, his disciples, how to pray. And in teaching his disciples how to pray, what he's doing is revealing two big things. In the preface to the Lord's Prayer and in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, what what Jesus is doing is making his followers aware of who it is that they're praying to. He says, when you pray, pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven. Now he tells us that God, the one that we pray to, is our heavenly father. That there's a nearness, there's an intimacy that we can have with him. But he's also the God who is in heaven. That there's, there's power, there's might, there's wisdom. And So he directs us, this is who you're praying to. But then in the second half of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus shows us what we should be asking our heavenly father for. The commentator said, That everything sensible that we could possibly ask for is here in the Lord's Prayer. Because Jesus, he first shows us to pray for our daily bread. He tells us to bring our physical needs to God first. Say, Lord, would you please provide for us? Give us the physical necessities that we need to to flourish as human beings. It's interesting that he starts off with the physical. But but then he moves into the spiritual needs that we have, and and it's not just one, but there's two of them. There's two petitions that that cry for help in our spiritual needs. And the first one is a, a plea of pardon. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. See, Jesus is saying, hey, you need something more than bread, you need forgiveness. You need pardon. And then finally, in the last verse of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray for protection. Now, we're going to stop our series here with verse 13. A lot of people who are familiar with the Lord's Prayer knows that there's a a doxology that gets attached to the end, and you're probably wondering where that comes from. That comes from the Old Testament, and you can kind of pick it up and nuance throughout the New Testament as well. That got added on later on. Uh, We're not going to dig into that. We're just going to stick with what Jesus taught us to pray right here. But here in this final petition, Jesus is teaching us to pray for protection from the spiritual dangers that loom. He's telling us to pray for strength and deliverance from the toil, the danger, and snares that we're going to face on a daily occurrence. And so in a sense, verse 13 of the Lord's Prayer Where Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil that wakes us up to the real and unrelenting, soul-threatening danger of Satan and of evil and the role of temptation in our life. Now, as we've gone through the Lord's Prayer, there have been passages that have been hard for us to pray honestly. I've said this probably every week so far. It's easy for the Lord's Prayer to roll off the tip of our tongues without thinking about what we're actually praying for. But when we consider what it is we're praying for, there's some of these things that are really hard to pray for honestly. It's hard for us to say, your kingdom come, your will be done, and not my own. It's hard for us to say, forgive me as I forgive others. But this line that we have today, in verse 13, might be the most confusing line that we find in the Lord's Prayer. Because if we, if we know the Bible, it seems that there's some contradictions here. It seems that if we were to, to think through biblically or go through uh, different books of the Bible, we might find uh, some contradictory, th- contradictory things about temptation. Because when Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation... That implies that God would lead us into temptation. And if we know James 1, who tells us that God tempts no one with evil, we're confused. What is this? What, if God tempts no one, but he might lead us into temptation? What, what is this? And so we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture today. We're we're, we're not going to try to to mesh these things with our own ideas. We're going to go to Scripture and let Scripture tell us what to think. And and as we go through Scripture, what we realize is that temptation is used in two different ways. Now, when Jesus speaks of temptation in the Lord's Prayer, it's not probably the way that you're thinking of. It's not the sense of being lured or enticed by something, right? You, you're, you're in your kitchen and you see a cake sitting on the, on the counter and you go, oh, that looks tempting. Right? That, that's not the case here. It's not the temptation that Jesus is praying about. He's talking about temptation in the sense of a test or a trial. It's, it's a situation that reveals our ability to either do right or do wrong. Right? And, and when God is tempting us, he's not tempting us so that we would fall and fail. He's tempting us so that we would be able to resist the ability to do right and avoid wrong. Now in every learning environment, there is a concept of tests or temptations or trials. Because this concept proves mastery. Mastery. Right to to graduate from school, you have to take tests because those tests reveal whether or not you know the content that you were taught. Like a driving test, right? a driver's ed test isn't set out to make people fail. Right, the test is set out there to prove that they have mastered the art of driving. Now, my disclaimer with that is that 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 in the way that a a driving test or driving in general can be a test of your ability, it can also easily segue into the other kind of temptation, right, if you're going to road rage or not. In my case, it usually is road rage. See, God is doing the same thing with us spiritually. J.I. Packer says, God tests us regularly to prove what is in us and to show how far we've come. Now what he's saying here, God tests us. God puts us in situations where our character and our faith will be tried. But but in God's purposes, the tests are not to lead us to failure. In God's purpose, the testing is always constructive. See 1 Corinthians tells us that, that God will never put us in a place where we'll be tempted beyond our ability. And so God gives us trials or tests, each one designed to be an opportunity for our faith to grow and to be strengthened. In fact, if we go back to James 1, James is Jesus' half-brother. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, that right there shows us what God's aim is in leading us to trials and temptations. To create steadfastness. To generate faith and strength and the ability to grow and mature that we may be perfect and complete. Now, this is where a lot of people think, oh, like someday on this side of eternity, I will be perfect. No, uh uh-uh. But there is a sense where the Spirit of God is working in you to refine you and to make you more in the image of Christ. And then one day when you are glorified, then you stand perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But, But it's not like Christianity doesn't come to Jesus and, and sit still and let things fly by you in life. No, God is using things in your life, many times they're ordinary things, to grow your faith and expand your trust in him. See, God's aim is for us to be perfect and complete, to reach our full potential, and we do not get there unless we are tested it's like a, an Olympic weightlifter. Right? An Olympic weightlifter will never stand at the top of the podium and get the gold medal unless he has put his body through a series of tests, probably daily, if not multiple times a day. Now, each test, each trial it is, is working to strengthen and create endurance in his body. And it's by resisting that the act of practicing resistance that he becomes strong. And as his body is tested, it grows strong and endurance, and, and he gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So that way, he can work his way up. You can't deadlift 400 pounds without first trying to lift 110 pounds. Right? Each step is a working toward that goal. this is what God is doing in our trials. He's he's developing the muscles of our faith. He's trying to to test us in a way where we can succeed. Now, we can see, you, you might like, oh, God doesn't tempt people, right? God doesn't lead people into temptation. And and all you have to do to prove that God actually does lead people into temptation would be to go back a couple pages in Matthew and look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Because here here in Matthew's gospel, Matthew shows us that Jesus is with his disciples. He he goes to the river, he's baptized by John the baptizer. And and in, in his baptism, the Spirit of God descends upon him. And God says, this is my beloved son. And then right after that, the spirit of God that descended upon Jesus leads him into the wilderness. I'll read it for you. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit. Say the spirit. He was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God led Jesus into this trial. See, this is, God is doing something that every good father ought to do to his children. In developing character, in developing integrity, in developing spiritual fortitude, laying out tests, trials, and letting the children work through it themselves. Seeing God and and leading him to the, the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, no food, no water. God is saying to Jesus, do you trust me? Now, 40 days, 40 nights out in the wilderness, no food, no water, that's trial enough, is it not? But Then Satan injects himself in the scenario, makes things harder, we'll come back to that. But God is asking Jesus, do you trust me when things are hard? Do you trust me when you face temptations and tests? Now God is asking the same thing of us. Do you trust me? As my wife and I were pregnant with our third son, Zane, It was kind of a rocky road. About 20 weeks or 24 weeks, something along those lines, we found out that it was a complicated pregnancy. He was small, um, measuring behind, and having experienced a miscarriage before, it seemed like every single doctor's appointment we had was about to turn a corner and to say, we don't know what's going to happen to this baby. And in a lot of ways, that's how a lot of these conversations ended. We'll just see. We'll wait it out. And in that, it's like one of those situations where you have very little control. God is saying to us, do you trust me? Would you trust me? And we have the joy of, we just celebrated Zane's third month of life. It's pretty exciting. God was very gracious to us, but I know people who have gone through situations like this, who have lost that baby? No, I don't know. Like, I'm telling you that if that were to have happened, I probably wouldn't be your pastor anymore. I would lose it, guys. The trial, the difficulty... How do, you, how do you bounce back from something like that? And I have a pastor, I know a pastor who's, who's experienced that very thing. And God bless him. He and his wife are suffering, but their hope is in Jesus, and they're saying, we trust you, God. When this doesn't make sense, when I'm ready to collapse and faint and give it all up, they're saying, I trust you, God. C.S. Lewis says that you won't know the strength of temptation or, or the difficulty of trial at one hour if you don't experience it at five minutes. There's a sense of that when, when things intensify, the difficulties only increase. And at each moment, Jesus is asking, will you trust me? Now, you might find yourself right in the middle of a test. You might feel that you are in a time of trial where God is asking you the same thing. Will you trust me? Maybe it's with matters of financial things. Maybe it's with tithing. Will you trust me to provide for you if you give to God your first fruits? Are you giving generously and joyfully? Now, for some of you, that might feel like a test, a trial, and it is. It's one that comes every month for me because I could either take that money and and put it towards something selfish or I could trust God and step into obedience. Maybe it's with your character. You're at work. It seems like there's some sort of allegiance against you people are are gossiping and slandering you and putting you down belittling you and it takes everything in you to keep going into work God's asking you are you going to trust me to uphold your name are you going to be still are you going to let me fight for you instead of taking things into your own hands or maybe it's in your marriage Right, it's just a time where marriage is tough. And if that's the case, hopefully, you know, come back next week and we're going to start unpacking some of this marriage stuff. But it's a trial where marriage is difficult. And the question is, will you trust God? Will you do the right thing? Will you love unconditionally and lay your life down for your spouse? Or maybe you just really want to be married and this isn't the season where God has somebody there for you yet. question is, is God enough? Do you trust God to be enough or no? See, as Christians, we can expect that God will bring tests. He will bring trials into our life because that is what good fathers do to train their kids. Hebrews 12 says that, in fact, this is how we know that we belong to God, that we will face difficulties that, we, that he will discipline us and he'll, he'll strengthen our character through these tests. But as a loving father, we, might also, we can also know that when we go to him, that he is willing to withhold severe tests of faith. He's willing to to, to refrain from sending us into tests of obedience that might be too much for us to handle. And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. He's saying, Lord God, Father God, would you keep us from going to places where our soul is not ready to go yet? God will answer that sometimes. There's going to be times where God spares you from really difficult things. My wife and I were spared from a very, very difficult situation with Zane. But there are going to be times where the Lord deems that it's best for you to walk into this trial. Now, the key to enduring those trials is remembering that it's your heavenly Father who loves you, who wants what's best for you, who sends you into these times. It is not a time to punish you for doing wrong. It's not a time to just rub it in your face. See, God is working even the darkest, most complicated things out for your good. And while God has a constructive purpose for our trials and temptations, Satan sees these as an opportunity to inject himself into those scenarios and to be working for destruction. He he exploits these situations that God means for our good, and he preys on our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities that's exactly what, what Satan did with Jesus in the wilderness. Je- like I said, Jesus was already hungry. He was already thirsty. But then Satan comes, it's like, "I'm going to make you promises. I'm going to try to get you to get out of this." He comes in those scenarios to tempt us and to lead us into evil. Now I think this is the second way that we think of temptation. This is probably the most common way we think of temptation in being lured towards sin or evil. Now, God is not the one who dangles something over us to try to get us to sin. That is the work of Satan. And we must realize how big of a threat Satan can be. Now, let me say this I've talked a lot about Satan today. At Sacred City Church, we don't talk a lot about Satan. This, if this is your visiting, we're not one of those churches that's going to go trump around the Satan drum a lot. But there is a sense that if we want to live faithfully in the fallen world, we need to be aware of Satan and his schemes. We need to know what Scripture says about him, not not some sort of uh, Hollywood version of Satan, but what does Scripture say about him? Scripture tells us that Satan his main objective is to steal, kill and destroy. First Peter talks about him as a lion who's ready to devour you. He's a liar, the father of lies in fact every lie stems from him he's A deceiver who makes empty promises, promises that he can't deliver on. He is our enemy number one. And you want to know why he hates us? Why he wants to set out to kill, kill, steal, and destroy? It's because you like God, it's because you go to God in prayer. It's because your heart is inclined toward God and not to evil if you are a believer. He hates you. Now, Satan might seem like this scary being, and and there's a sense where he is scary. Literally pure evil, where every ounce of evil we see in this world, again, comes from him but but satan's evil his scariness isn't the alarming thing about temptation and how he tempts us see satan doesn't go implanting desires in our hearts that are foreign to us satan exploits what desires that are already there and they're usually good desires but he just twists them and contorts them into something that is wretched James 1, again, has kind of been a touch point for us. James 1, verses 13 through 15 says, Let no one say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, this shows us Satan's motive and the means, that he he wants to ruin you by dragging you to the depths of hell. And he's gonna do it by misdirecting and exploiting your desires. Now, I have to say this because Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is limited in time and space. There's the sense that we could say, oh, it's Satan's fault and blame everything on him. Satan is not necessarily the one who's tempting you specifically, but he's preying upon your fallen condition, the brokenness of your desires to get you to follow him in a path of darkness. Now, this is apparent in the story of Adam and Eve, where Satan comes into the Garden of Eden, takes the form of a serpent, and he takes a small piece of fruit and convinces Adam and Eve that they would be better off if they ignored God and ate this fruit. And with this little piece of fruit, Satan managed to create a massive chasm between God and his people that God escorted Adam and Eve out of the garden. He said that from this point on, our relationship isn't going to be the same. Things are going to be messed up. It was with one piece of fruit. And he twisted the truth, and he, he told Adam and Eve that God is holding out on you, and if you just ate this fruit, you'd really be fulfilled in all matters. You'll be like God, and when they ate of the fruit, they lost everything. Satan couldn't deliver on any of these promises. The little piece of fruit, the little nibble that seemed like a, a harmless little kitten became an aggressive lion ready to pounce and devour. And you must realize that it doesn't take much for Satan to be effective. Like a win for Satan is not to convert people to Satanism. A win for Satan is to distract you from worshiping and glorifying and having a relationship with God. He was one little piece of fruit that compromised the integrity of all creation. Now, church, if we are going to resist Satan, we need to know where he's likely to attack, and we have to strive to defend. And so I've got a few questions that I want to ask you. To help you think about this, because thinking about this, thinking about how Satan and his schemes might be at work in our life is the first step of defense to keep us from falling into temptation. So let me ask you this, if Satan were to try to keep you from God, how would he tempt you? What is the area of your life that you are most susceptible to temptation in? Maybe it's not how would he tempt you. Maybe it's real time. How is he tempting you? Does your desire to be wanted make you run into the arms of other men? Does your desire to maintain an image lead you to gossiping, overspending? Does does your comfort your desire for comfort, does does that make you uh, want to turn your home into a sanctuary of privacy rather than a tool for mission and hospitality? Does your desire to be known and to be successful keep you at work late to impress your boss while you neglect your family and your church family? Does your desire for self-sufficiency, cause you to push God away. Right? You, you look at your bank accounts and say, this is adequate for me. I, I can make do on this and say, you know what, God, I just don't need you. Or for me, over the last couple weeks, I, I've realized that anger is a place of temptation. And I'm not talking about raging on people, but I'm talking about a subtle boiling of anger and frustration that causes me to sin and to look down on other people. So the question is, in what ways is Satan tempting you? Where's your chink in the armor? Then the next question, practical, what are the circumstances that I find myself being tempted? Now, temptation is likely to come when your guard is down. Maybe you're tired from a long day of work. Maybe you're frustrated because you didn't get something that you wanted. Maybe you're emotionally compromised or circumstances are, are not ideal. Or maybe, maybe things are going great. Like, things are just cruising along, not suspecting anything. See, what are those times where you are most vulnerable If you can see what's coming at you, then you have the ability to be prepared for defense. And when it comes to defense, Scripture has two options for you. 2 Timothy 2 says to flee from temptation. Like literally run. Now this might seem cowardly, but in some some scenarios, this is the most godly thing that you can do. Just flee. Now there's a sense where You can't run away from yourself, right? Everywhere you go, there you are. But when temptation is localized, when it has a geographical place where you find yourself being most tempted, then that's a place you need to avoid. If if you're a recovering alcoholic, right, that probably means you need to stay away from party scenes, stay away from the bars, Now, you you have Christian liberty if you feel that that that's not tempting, where you can step into that. but, But there's a sense where I need to flee from the situations that are going to pull me toward evil and sin. If you have an unhealthy relationship, run. Sister, just run. Fellas, close the computer and go take a walk. Flee from the temptation. Now, the second option is to fight or to resist this. James, again, in in chapter 4 of his epistle, he says, Resist the devil. Fight back. Lace up your gloves and go to work jab after jab after jab. And as you resist, as you fight, he says, Satan will flee from you. See, when you can identify the desires or the things in your heart that lead you into sin, you can begin to fight back by going to God for those things. If you need acknowledgement, if you need vindication, if you need approval, go to God. Remember the gospel. And when you go to Jesus, you find a better, more life-giving option that restores your soul and not ruin it. So fight back. Right, this Finding your satisfaction in Jesus is the key to successfully fighting off temptation. That's something that prayer helps us with. Now when you fight or when you flee, don't think that Satan is going to just go, oh, that's it, I played all my cards. Satan won't back down. You did not stump him. There will not be a point in your life where you will no longer be tempted by sin. See, just as, G, as Jesus was tempted on multiple occasions while he was in the wilderness, Jesus said no one time, Satan came back a second time. Jesus said no a second time, Satan came back a third time. He is going to keep coming at you. And each wave of temptation is likely to become harder and more intense. But here's the thing. The more that you give yourself to the trial, the more you give yourself to the test, the stronger you become in the faith to fight off. There's a sense if you give yourself to faith and obedience to Jesus and God right now, there are temptations and, and, and trials that you'll face five years down the road that you'll be victorious in then, but you probably wouldn't be now. He's going to continue to deploy more and more schemes to to make you succumb to temptations. And one of his tactics is to convince you that you're alone in being tempted. He's going to tell you that it's your job to wrestle with your desires and fix them, that it's up to you to generate good desires. But then he's going to show you how strong he is over you. He's going to show you that you're outmatched, you're outgunned, you're too weak. He might convince you or insist that you're isolated, that nobody else has struggled the way that you struggle. That there's no help for you. He, he's going to tell you, you got yourself into the me- this mess, you better work yourself out of it. You're in too deep. There's no chance of hope for you. You're stuck like this forever. And then, and then he mounts the guilt and shame upon you and, and tells you that you ought to be too ashamed to even go and ask for help. Uh, praying on you, leaving you in a devastated spot. As I close, let me tell you this. The second part of verse 13 in the Lord's Prayer Jesus insists otherwise. Everything that Satan accuses you of or or tempts you with or threatens you or or tries to, to use as a scheme to keep you pinned down, Jesus says otherwise. He says, pray, deliver us from evil. Or in some translations, deliver us from the evil one. Jesus is teaching us to cry out to our Heavenly Father for help, that we aren't alone. To cry out to our Heavenly Father for deliverance, that we're not stuck like this forever. To cry out to the Heavenly Father for protection and rescue. Jesus, once again, in just another form, is teaching us how to become more dependent upon God. First it was for provision, then it was for pardon, and now it's for protection. Now, these four words deliver us from evil, show us that all of Satan's tactics that are used to trap us in sin are a lie. See, not only are they a lie, but there actually is a way out. There actually is a way to resist the temptation that seems too strong. Because Jesus is telling us that we're not alone. Psalm 48 tells us that God is our ever, God is ever present in times of trouble. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. God is with us. He is right there beside us. He has not forsaken us. He has not left you to flounder and fail and mess up. He is near you and he is ready to move in when you call his name. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Now it's in in the midst of these trials and temptations that God shows up in the most powerful and mighty of ways. God moves in and he unbinds Satan and his power over us. He conquers all evil. Satan doesn't stand a chance. And if you don't believe me, uh, later on in the year, we're going to be jumping in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation says, Satan loses, God wins. Psalm 63:20, "Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up daily. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Now, how do we know this is true? Because this sounds like a bunch of Old Testament garbage right now. Not garbage, I don't mean that. But this sounds like a bunch of Old Testament stuff that probably doesn't matter anymore. How do we know this is true? We look to the cross. The cross is evidence that God sees us in our time of trouble and he rescues us from our sin. Galatians 1 tells us, Jesus gave himself up that he might rescue us from the present evil age. And you know whose will that's according to? To the will of our heavenly father. See, it's our sin, it's our failure, it's our inability to resist temptation, to to resist sin and evil. That is what drove Jesus to the cross. It's where he faced his biggest trial. Jesus' biggest trial was in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going. He knew he was going to be crucified. He knew he was going to be killed. And he said, Father, take this cup from me if it be your will. And God said, no, you have to take it. This is your cup to drink. And Jesus said, if it is your will, I will do it, and I will do it joyfully for the joy that was set before him. Jesus endured the cross because he knew that in going to the cross, he would bear all of our sin, our shame. He would absorb the death that was ours to take. And in doing so, he delivered us from bondage of sin. See, it's so bizarre that Jesus goes to the cross. He's killed. He looks like an idiot. People revile him. Like Satan in that moment is thinking, I won. Game over. All of humanity is mine now to torment forever. But Jesus shows his power. God shows his power over sin and death by raising Jesus from the dead. That Jesus is not the loser. Jesus is the victor. And one day he will come back and banish all sin and all death and all temptation. Where we will enjoy God face to face like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But it will be better. And so he has freed us. He's set us free in a way that Satan now cannot condemn you. When you succumb to temptation, when you mess up, when you move towards sin, if you repent of your sin, you put your sin on Jesus and trust that he has gone to the cross for you, for every sin upon him was laid. And when Satan comes to say, you should be ashamed of yourself, all you need to do is point to the cross and say, Jesus took it for me already. He has no real power to condemn you because salvation belongs to God. Now, not only does God show us his power over sin and death and evil in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, but he also gives us a community of people to rely on in our times of weakness. The Lord's Prayer, we've already identified this almost every time it's come up, but the Lord's Prayer has communal language. Lead us not into temptation. There is a commonality between all people in that every single person is tempted. Now, this is the glorious thing about missional community because we know everybody is tempted, but people might be tempted in different ways. People have different walks of life, but here we are knowing that I'm probably being tempted and you're probably being tempted and we can honestly confess the things that are are luring us, the desires that are in our hearts that are not redeemed yet. We can confess them to one another, ask for prayer and encouragement together, and rely and lean on each other when we're struggling. Now, this is especially glorious about missional communities, but, but even moving into a more intimate setting like Fight Club, and you're probably like Fight Club, you guys beat each other up. Fight Club is where a group of guys or ladies get together, it's an intimate group, three or four people, maybe five. And they're really honest about the ways that we're struggling, the ways that we are fighting to believe the gospel. That's why we call it a fight club. We're fighting together in the faith. And a fight club is a great place where you can be honest with people and lean into one another. But listen, God doesn't just give us accountability. He doesn't just give us people to say, oh, yeah, I messed up this week. Better try again next week. Probably fail again. God gives us his Holy Spirit who lives inside every single believer. If your faith is in Jesus, if you believe that he went to the cross to free you from your sin, the Spirit is inside of you. And the Spirit is at work teaching you how to will what is good, how to live uprightly, how to fight against temptation and evil. And the Spirit gives us assurance that we're never alone. The Spirit helps us fight. The Spirit tells us when to flee. The Spirit makes it so that we'll never be tempted beyond, our belief, beyond what we're able to, to bear. See, this is the good news of the gospel, my friends. That sin has lost its power. Jesus has inserted himself as a victor, and the Spirit of God is in us now, working to will what is good, right, and true. That's the end of my sermon. Um, Let's, we're going to come together at the Lord's table now. We're going to come together as a community. And we're going to come in faith, and we're going to take out our hands like this. This is how you receive the Lord's table, open-handedly. That's the only way that, that God's grace is available to us. And when our hands are open, we're going to receive what God has for us, the provisions that we need, the provision that allows us to sustain, be sustained in our times of trial, the protection that we need so that we can flee and fight evil. And temptation in our life. Let's come with faith, and let's be a community that says "No to sin, that says no to evil and says yes to Jesus. Father, we pray, we pray that you would do a work in us that we can't do ourselves. We pray that your spirit would empower us for whatever trials that come our way, and we would know that, that every trial comes, it's, it's dealt to us at the hand of a loving, merciful, heavenly Father who isn't trying to bait us and trying to get us to to ruin ourselves and fall into sin, but who's trying to grow our faith and increase our obedience. Father, would this meal be a meal that sustains us for this work? In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.